when Russia in initially invaded Ukraine in 2014, uh, I saw it firsthand take a very dark turn. It was originally my investigations concerning the international influence, the impact of Kremlin's social media propaganda army, the so-called Kremlin trolls. And I specifically started to investigate how are they capable of manipulating real people's ideas and even behavior. We've seen that along with their kinetic military strategy, it now comes alongside an information war. In which Trump was himself attacking the media and claiming that rigged and corrupt media is the enemy of the people. You see people like Tucker Carlson, they mimic they mimic RT now. They are indistinguishable. And for people that are watching but, and people that yeah. don't want to be duped, they really need to be careful about the kind of content that they consume online. In the courtroom, on the air, online, in classrooms and conferences around the world, we've been exposing conspiracy, extremist, and disinformation movements mobilized by authoritarians to break down democracy. And we'd like you to join us on this pro-democracy pro-truth movement on our new podcast, Information War, with Liz Wall and Jessica Aro. So, Liz Wall, my friend, I'm so happy uh, to get to talk to you about this uh, favorite topic of ours. And you are, uh, for example, uh, my favorite people, one of my favorite people in the world, and such an inspiration, and also a distinguished expert in Russian information warfare. And you are amongst the very first people who tried to raise the alarm against the Kremlin's influence attempts through propaganda and brainwashing. And you regularly train people to recognize and counter information operations. And you have even been heard as a witness in the US Congress about this topic. But before we dive deeper uh, into information warfare uh, with you, please let me know and share your thoughts. What did you think when you learned that Putin and his troops had accelerated their attack and warfare against Ukraine. I had flashbacks to 2014 during Russia's first invasion of Ukraine. And at that time, I was actually working in a Russian newsroom. And uh, it was around this time that I was pressured to manufacture a story about what was going on in Ukraine. For example, a Russian news director uh, very much pretty much demanding that I portray the Russian invaders as peacekeepers and to amplify and bring attention to this idea that the Ukrainians were Nazis. Um, This was kind of a new narrative at the time, and I researched it more and tried to figure out why he would want me to use this kind of language because... I couldn't find any justification for it. Um, And it became apparent that they were trying to manufacture a reason, a justification for invading Ukraine. Um, And so I was brought back to that time and I realized that what we were seeing now was 2014 on steroids. 
And now they were calling the government of Ukraine neo-Nazis and the same themes of Russian peacekeepers needing to come in to rescue the oppressed Russian speakers. Um, All of it is so blatantly false. Um, So that is what I was thinking when, uh, as the troops were amassing the border. I would like to still go a little bit to your own experience uh, within RT. So RT's own editor-in-chief, Margarita Simonian, who is a close circle friend with Vladimir Putin, uh, she herself has attributed RT as a weapon of information warfare and even Ministry of Defense. So how would you say... Uh, how did that concretely show in, for example, your assignments? Like, did your bosses, for example, tell you how to write? I remember you mentioned sometimes uh, that your uh, articles and questions were secretly edited. Please tell about that. Yeah, well, I think in the first invasion of Ukraine, that was the first time because this was obviously a very strong foreign policy goal for Russia and for the Kremlin, that that was the first time where it went from covering stories that the mainstream media ignores to manufacturing a false narrative around a war. I, uh, this was the first time where the news director, the Russian news director um, would, I'd have to meet with him in his office and he would ask me, to basically that there were some like must ask questions. One of which was, um, I have to ask about the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Like that was something that I had to ask about. And you can see this, the beginning of this narrative starting in the first invasion. Um, And so obviously for me, that was a very difficult thing to do because I'm reading up on uh, the reality of on the ground in, in Ukraine. Um, seeing reporting from other journalists on the ground, and that just was not true. Um, it was it was just in a complete and utter distortion that they wanted me to use my voice to amplify this lie. We also weren't allowed to say an invasion. We had to portray it as a peacekeeping mission. Um, so, and again, here in eight years later in the full scale invasion, similar thing in Russia, the war, you, anybody that uses the word war or invasion, uh, to characterize what's really happening on the ground can face prison time up to 15 years of prison time for, um, fake news. So you can see the seeds of these narratives planted in 2014 during their first invasion and it seemed like they were just trying to perfect uh you know their information war their strategy and um and unleash it at the same time as their full-scale invasion it's like they can't do their full-scale invasion without also amplifying lies and distortions and um, engaging in also this information war Right. And just if someone is not familiar with the normal journalistic processes and routines, it is not normal for your supervisors in Western media to have you ask questions about non-existent things. No, it's not. Yeah, It's not at all. Because I've been asked a lot lately by 
uh, researchers of disinformation, you know, how does this work? Like, what is the connection to Moscow? But there's also some, like in RT, for example, there was one host. Lona Minkowski, host of RT's The Alona Show, is joining me. Right, This is a really disturbing, scary, horrible step, if you ask me, in the wrong direction. I mean, here you have a president that sits in his chambers and chooses who he's going to execute. That sounds like a dictator, right? That sounds like a king. That does not sound like a democratically elected president. Her whole thing was bashing the U.S. and highlighting U.S., Western, NATO hypocrisy. Her mother is a member of the Russian parliament and got her a job at RT as a propagandist at the age of 21. That and sounds righteous. Yeah. And then after that, but it, this story gets so twisted because after that, she had left RT. She scrubbed her connection to the Kremlin, which is a very real connection because her mother is, she's a she's in Putin's political party. She is currently spreading propaganda about the war. She is um, just, I mean, she's a Putin official, government official, has her daughter, puts her in this um, at the age of 21 as a host for RT. The daughter does her whole thing where she smears NATO, denigrates the mainstream media, um, also denigrates the U.S. military, U.S. institutions. And then she leaves and goes to another organization called the Huffington Post, where she disguises her Russian ties and then just continues to report on a variety of things. But one of the consistencies is her focusing on Western hypocrisy, NATO hypocrisy. Um, and now her mother is now being sanctioned because of her involvement in, um, in complicity in Putin's war. And so this is kind of like this complex way in which like, yes, it's RT, but it's also when they leave RT and then they spread their kind of tentacles and other and try to impact mainstream news sites. And she's written for various mainstream news sites without even mentioning her Kremlin connection, all the while denigrating NATO and um, remaining silent on the war in Ukraine. So I guess that's my big mes message there is for um, those that want to understand Russian propaganda, you, you really need to look at this complex web of troll farms, RT, Russian media, extremist sites, apologists, and how they all kind of weave together and amplify each, each other's voices. And, and it's hard to even identify where the propaganda began. Um, that's one of the more difficult elements of it. Exactly, yeah. And the idea for a journalist uh, that there are seriously Russian moles inserted uh, in newsrooms, in uh -huh. Western journalistic newsrooms, it just is so distressing as an idea. But it's great that you mentioned about it because that's something that really needs to keep an eye on when, when browsing the news. These moles are um, in different places and can be found in surprising institutions. You mentioned having worked in a Russian newsroom, and that's very unique, and having witnessed firsthand the Russian propaganda machine in the making, it was RT America, Russia Today's branch in Washington. Um, please describe how was that like? How was it different than working in normal journalistic Western media? 
uh, which isn't conducting information warfare. What makes it different is that its mission was to bash the United States, to denigrate Western institutions, to denigrate NATO, and just to make the United States look hypocritical, dysfunctional, and failing. And now seeing what's happening in Ukraine, we can see the reasoning behind that strategy, because now that Russia is indiscriminately and actually in a calculated manner targeting civilians, um, what their propagandists now are doing is saying, well, look at what you've done in, uh, in Afghanistan and look what you've done. What about what happened in Iraq or what about your problems, you know? Um, so they've really been effective over the years. By the time Russia launches this horrific full-scale war, um, they can just say, you, you guys know it yourself. Uh, you're no better than us. Leave us alone. So it's been really effective, I think, because it's a very murky world, as you know, with Russian propaganda. It's the TV channels, it's the ties to conspiracy sites, social media, partnerships with people like Alex Jones or Max Blumenthal, unsavory characters like that that are now spreading the conspiracy theory that Ukraine is bombing themselves. And then it's other partnerships with right-wing media like Fox News now. So there's a lot of overlap. It's very diffuse and amorphous. And as we know... This um, authoritarian disinformation and Putin's plot to take down democracy is kind of like targeting a bunch of countries in the West, not only the U.S. and not only in Ukraine, even in your experience, you know, in Scandinavia and Finland. So um, I want to ask you about your experience, unless unless there was anything you wanted to ask that... Um, that's you didn't I, I want to I want to underline uh, what you did uh, at the end when you had enough. I want to thank you for doing it uh, from the bottom of my heart and you truly opened so many people's eyes and did it with a really massive personal cost. And uh, your courage was noted throughout the media globally and uh, I even saw, news about your action being spread around uh, on my news feeds for many days. And what, what those news were telling, uh, were telling that you resigned from RT live on air and you told, let's listen to uh, the original clip, what you told. A dramatic move today by an anchor for the network Russia Today America. Her name is Liz Wall. She's an American who works in, uh, in the Russia Today America's Washington bureau. She accused her employer of glossing over the actions of Vladimir Putin in Crimea. And then on the air, she quit. Take a look. I cannot be part of network funded by the Russian government that whitewashes the actions of Putin. I'm proud to be an American and believe in disseminating the truth. And that is why, after this newscast, I'm resigning. And that, that is just amazing. So just please let us know, what was it like for you? How did you feel back when you were, were you doing your final report, so to say? Yeah. Well, yeah, this, this was a day where I had enough. 
um, for a variety of reasons. But I could I could tell at the time that it was taking a sinister turn, and I just wanted to have I wanted to be nothing part of it. I wanted to separate my name from it. Um, and I'm so glad I did. You know, looking at what's going on in Ukraine today. Um, because sometimes I wondered, because I faced so much backlash from the RT crowd spreading conspiracy theories and spreading it like there was a white nationalist site that wrote like some filthy racist um, article about me. And then you had the somebody like Alex Jones weighed in. And then you had just kind of like the fringe and just like the filthiest aspects of, of the media but kind of like the shady media, but all descending on you. But now having a platform to attack you on, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and it was not fun. <laughs> it was not fun to face that backlash. Um, so sometimes I wish I had wished that I just left quietly. But now watching what's happening in Ukraine, I'm happy that I did go public. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know what, screw all of those trolls. And I think um, it has helped to bring awareness to the inner workings of that place and the way that Russian disinformation operates on the inside. So anything that might have been able to help um, open people's eyes onto what Ukraine um like how disinformation works and the way that it was being weaponized towards Ukraine. And then in the years after that, with, with Putin trying to influence our U.S. elections and the war in Syria, um, I think it was the right choice. So that was that. Um, but as you know, it came, it came with some costs. It came with a lot of aggravation. It came with a lot of trolling. It came with a lot of attacks on my character and my motivations. Um, but like, you know, like people like you, you, you get it, like you get why I did it. Um, and that's why I really appreciate having you as a friend. And I totally understand your, your, uh, your fight and your bravery in continuing your mission. You've written a book about your experiences and Putin's trolls, and you've helped tell other people's stories that have been impacted by Russian information operations. So I want to start off uh, asking you about the beginning, because for you, it was around 2014 as well. And you started investigating this world of Russian disinformation, Russian trolling. And I know you kind of went into this as a professional journalist, just trying to figure out what's going on, but it turned into a journey for you, I think, that of one that you, you didn't predict it. It was super big. And because you were making waves, you were personally attacked. And um, so I, I, I'd want to start off um, with your story, your journey from the beginning and um, your findings and what you think, you know, what what your findings from your investigations, you know, what they say about the scope of Russian disinformation and what the world should know about these types of influence operations. 
definitely. Um, my story with the Russian trolls and information warfare and crimes ensuing uh, actually goes hand in hand with um, me trying to report what happened in Ukraine back in 2014 when Russia started attacking it so-called secretly. And even for me, as a professional journalist, it was so difficult to try and figure it out because there was so much propaganda and there were so much conspiracy theories and there was nothing uh, certain coming in um, from the news agencies. Uh, it, there was a lot of talk about, for example, uh, pro-Kremlin separatists who were uh, attacking e Eastern Ukrainian uh, targets. Uh, and only much later we learned that they were actually Russian security services and special uh, military men. So it was so difficult for journalists to just do my job. And at the same time, I have to tell you, there was really brave Russian journalists uh, independent ones who had a year prior, so 2013, they had uncovered the so-called troll factory. So this massive office in St. Petersburg, Russia, in which regular people um, got paid to uh, put out pro-Putin propaganda on social media channels, uh, basically pretending uh, to be regular citizens, but actually getting salary for it. Mm. And I became super interested in that because I realized that that could pose an international problem and it could actually impact people and people's real people's ideas and attitudes or even behavior. And at first I thought it was also a threat to freedom of speech, people's right to receive rightful information and form opinions. But as I, I continued my investigations, I became more and more sure that it's also a threat to national securities for different countries. And what I found already uh, since the beginning, as I started to crowdsource this investigation, so with the help of Finnish internet users, we started to investigate Russian trolls and how they operate and how uh, they managed to impact real people. I realized one of the gravest threats that uh, disinformation and trolls pose is their ability to mold and manipulate real people's feelings and use those feelings to trigger people into action. For example, hateful action. For example, go protest in the streets. For example, go vote for Donald Trump as the president of the United States. Or go do whatever that is not in the best interest of the targeted person, but is in the interest of the uh, information warrior, Putin's regime. So... This is how it all started for me. And of course, I also became targeted for filth and uh, fake news, claiming that I am not a journalist, instead that I work for US um, and Baltic special services, as well as NATO. And uh, unfortunately, also my contact information was published in these Russian fake news sites. So then angry Russian people, real people who had read these stories and believed in them, taught me a lesson on why disinformation is so um, dangerous, because it does drive people into action, hateful action. And they uh, hope that I would die and um, take their shooting gun. Yeah. And I, f I remember you even felt like you needed to leave Finland for a while because it was not, didn't feel safe. Yes, uh, at that time it had uh, went on already 
for a couple of years, and there started to be Finnish language programmed in fake news about me as well. And unfortunately, those pieces started to agitate real Finnish people. So just like even my own friends uh, against me. And then I started to really feel uncomfortable in Finland. And I had to, had to really watch over my shoulder because there were so many uh, threats and death threats and rape threats and de- rape fantasies. Some of them were written by real uh, compatriots of mine uh, and some by Russian trolls and trolls. Did you say rape fantasies? Yeah, all kinds of material. Uh, actually, I made filed my criminal complaint, first criminal complaint. So I asked police to investigate this uh, activity as soon as I found the first really racist rape fantasy uh, from under one programming fake news piece uh, called What the Fuck Paper, uh, so-called news site. Mm-hmm. So there was just racistic um, hate speech fantasizing about raping me. So that's that's when i had enough yeah yeah and you have had some success in court and this is notable because you are the first as i understand journalist in europe that were that's actually been able to hold a troll or russian disinformation connected person um accountable attempted to influence the U.S. presidential election. And so far, holding anyone responsible has been like a game of whack-a-mole. They all disappear into a murky digital world. Until now. A man working for one of those pro-Russian sites has been sentenced to 22 months in prison for trying to ruin the reputation of an investigative journalist. Her name is Jessica Aro. So, Jessica, I want to ask you, because in some other I've seen other coverage of the whole Russian trolling phenomenon, and some people say, oh, you know what? They're just a couple of trolls just online, whatever. Not really a big deal. They don't really have this big impact. And then whenever I hear that kind of analysis by people that obviously haven't looked into the information or researched it too too in depth, I think of you. Um, And I think of the book that you've written because you make a compelling case that this is not just minor trolling on the internet, that it's actually a really big phenomenon that can influence individual lives. It can influence democracies. Um, So can you explain that, your findings? um, How big is this troll farm situation and what what are the consequences Yes, thanks. I, I'd love to tell you about that um, because it's specifically what I wanted to find out myself as well. So what I found out was actually so massive that uh, it was difficult to comprehend. And unfortunately, it has only uh, gone worse after that. So even in Finland, as I was looking into uh, the international status of Russian trolls and their activities and their impact, I found out that the Russian trolls had already back then, 2014, 2015, uh, impacted real people in Finland. For example, uh, people told me that they stopped Russia uh, issues commenting online completely because once he, they had done so, the Russian trolls attacked them and called them names and threatened them. Even sometimes the Russian embassy's social media accounts, for example, Twitter account of the Russian embassy in Finland, Helsinki, 
they would mold these individual Finnish uh, online users' messages and use them in their own propaganda purposes. Think about it. So, so this is re really like states, uh, structure, embassies, social media account versus uh, individual uh, Finn. This is how far they would go. And also, of course, uh, there are so many different troll techniques that were uncovered, the spread of memes, uh, the spread of YouTube videos, uh, the uh, cross share of all of them, and also the commenting and rewriting history um, and writing conspiracy theories about how the war in Ukraine is in fact the fault of the you know, United States, NATO and European Union, and how it wasn't um, Russian uh, supported troops that took down MH17, instead it was uh, Ukrainian fighter jets. So these types of material the trolls were spreading and they were confusing. Already then people told me that they were confused what was true and what was not true concerning Russia's war in Ukraine. And that was deeply disturbing and alarming uh, because uh, then I knew that uh, this is much more bigger than I had originally thought and that it is certainly a national security threat and is used not just against Ukraine uh, as the primary target of the warfare actions, but also other countries' citizens in order to justify the warfare and to turn the policy favorable to the Kremlin as well as to maybe possibly... Um, impact the sanction policies against the Kremlin. So, Jessica, this is it's been so awesome to have this first kind of uh, introductory episode. In the future, we will be covering the latest on information warfare, and we will also be interviewing some of the top researchers and also bring uh, shed light on personal stories of people that have been affected from trolling and also people that are, that are playing their part in helping to win the information war, to be on the side of pro-truth, pro-democracy. That is our kind of role in the information war. That's what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast. And we're really excited to have our listeners join us along in this. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was such intriguing time with you. And let's hear again the latest from Kremlin's information warfare and it's uncovered on our next podcast a week from now. One week from now. You got it. All right. Thanks, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs>